The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at 2 Corinthians, we, uh, in chapter 2, we looked at the uh, exposing the schemes of the devil. Today we want to look at uh, what Paul says about exposing the authentic Christian life. What is the Christian life, really? Uh, let me read something to you that I wanted to from the New Testament. This is in Matthew uh, 13, where Jesus gives all of the parables about the kingdom of God and the life in the kingdom. This is verse 44 of uh, Matthew 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which men found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What Jesus is saying is, if you ever see what the kingdom of God really is, and how that you can enter it through faith in Jesus Christ, you find that it's worth more than anything else in life. There's nothing that can compare to the joy of living your life in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes we say things like, uh, you know, the gospel transforms your life, and we talk about all kinds of secondary things, but the fact is Jesus Christ is the only one who can transform our lives. And it's only as we learn to walk with him. And all of us who have come to faith in Christ, all of you who have rested your faith in Jesus Christ, have him living in you, and you've been called to walk with him, which means live your life in fellowship with him. And this is really what the Christian life is all about. We have a really, uh, probably the best example of genuine, true, authentic Christian living in this passage we're going to look at today. And the reason is, is that Paul's being absolutely transparent about his frustrations that he's going through at the present time. Someone has said that, you know, since we always want to tell about how many people <clears throat> that we have won for the Lord, we ought to also uh, report on how many people we've driven away from the Lord. <laughs> I try not to keep account of that. However, uh, the wonderful thing is that we have a God who's able to call people to himself and to give them this glorious gift, a gift that you can't earn, and you can only secure by receiving it as a gift. And what it results in is Christian living. But Christian living isn't, isn't what a lot of people think it is. It isn't just keeping certain habits like go to church on Sunday, um, give to the church, be involved in ministry, go on a short-term mission trip or something like that. We have a picture here of authentic Christian living, and it's kind of shocking. It begins in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. What I love about this is that Paul is so transparent. And notice, this is the setting of the, he gives us in the first two verses of this passage, the setting, this is what's going on. Paul says, when I came to Troas, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. In other words, there was real responsiveness. There were people there who welcomed the gospel and responded in faith. He says, but even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, the backstory of this is that Paul wants to meet Titus because he wants to get a report about how his letter had affected the Corinthians because he had written them what's referred to as a severe letter. He confronted them over some things that he had gone there and talked to them about. So he wrote a follow-up letter, and now he wants to know that it really reconciled them to him, because he didn't want there to be this rift between him and the Corinthians. Now, you've got to understand, Paul is the one who went to Corinth originally in Acts chapter 18 and took the gospel there. A Corinth was kind of like San Francisco. And uh, he went there. If you remember the Lord, he began to share the gospel, and he began to have certain kinds of consequences from it. And the Lord appears to him that night 
and encourages him not to run. Don't leave this city. Remain in this city, even though it looks like you're going to be persecuted, because he was pretty used to that. Paul almost always ended up in jail. Uh, the first time we see him running, he was a real basket case, because they had to lure him out of the city over the walls in a basket, remember? And he had to run because people wanted to kill him. And so Jesus appears to him the first day at Corinth, and he tells him, don't be afraid. I have many people in the city. And somebody said to me not long ago, I quoted that, and they said, they assumed that what he meant was, I got a bunch of people in the city that can protect you. That wasn't what he meant. What he meant was, I have many people here that I'm going to save through the gospel, and I want you to stay here and preach and proclaim this gospel. And so he did, and, uh, and this is how church planting took place in the, in the book of Acts. You preach the gospel, people get saved, and they form a church. When believers, when people come to faith in Christ, they want to begin to hang out together and to grow in their relationship with Christ. And that's what happened at Corinth. But there was a lot of trouble in the church at Corinth because they lived in a very difficult city to practice their, their Christianity. Uh, and so Paul, they wrote a letter to Paul with all kinds of questions. Paul wrote back, that's 1 Corinthians, and he answered all their questions. But then he went to Corinth to confront them over what he had heard was going on, which was a group had come in and tried to undermine the gospel that he had preached to them and to modify his message and to tell them that Paul is not really an apostle. He's not one of the original 12. These were Jewish people, who Judaizers they're called, who followed Paul around and tried to undo what he had done through the gospel. And so Paul wanted to squelch this, and he went to Corinth and he confronted this issue. And not only did these people want these uh, that came into that church wanted to turn them away from the true gospel, they wanted to turn them away from Paul. And so they told them that Paul was not an apostle, that he was a phony and a fake. He was fickle. You can never believe what he said. They wanted to undermine his reputation with them. Now, the reason Paul is concerned about that is not that he's real touchy. It is that he wanted to have a fruitful ministry to them. And in order to have a fruitful ministry to them as an apostle and a quipper of the saints, he had to have their confidence. They had to know that he was, a, was truly an apostle sent by Christ. And so he went and confronted it. Now, what he's worried about, he wrote a follow-up letter and told them what to do to carry out his, what he had instructed them. He's, he wants to know how did they respond. So Titus, who had taken his letter to them, was, uh, was going to meet him in Troas. So what happened was this, that Paul was at, at Ephesus. You see Ephesus there? And Paul leaves Ephesus, and he goes up to Troas, which is not on the map, but it's north of Ephesus in Asia Minor. He goes there, and he begins to preach the gospel, because Paul almost automatically began to preach the gospel everywhere he went. He began to preach this message of salvation in Christ, of coming to have a relationship with God, the Creator, who created you for Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. And people begin to respond. But he's so troubled, he can't stay there because he wants to talk to Titus. And so he heads across uh, the water over into Macedonia because that was the plan. If he didn't meet him in Troas, he would go over to Macedonia through Philippi and he would meet up with him somewhere because he wanted to hear, he was anxious to hear how the Corinthians were doing. In other words, he loved them. He had a real heart for them. He's the one who tells us in the New Testament that this is a part, right at the heart of being a pastor, is loving people. Loving God and loving people. That's how you can measure your spiritual growth. Do you love God more today than you did in the past? Do you love people more today than you did in the past? Those are the marks of spiritual growth. Now, what happens is that Paul, he's troubled in his mind, even though he wants to preach the gospel at Troas, but he's, he's anxious and unsettled, like a lot of us get, right? Have you prepared your taxes yet? And it doesn't bother you at all, does it, Grant? You never get upset, do you? That's right, you're the only guy in the room like that. But I, I got my taxes, I got all this stuff together to send in, and I was like, 
I thought, man, I hope nobody sees me today because this is a low watermark in my spirituality right here. I hate this process. <laughs> Anxiety, distraction, a fear. And um, Paul is being very transparent with us. He's upset. And his mind is troubled, and so he moves on. But then what he does is he begins to express his exaltation to God for what God was doing in his life in the midst of this uneasiness. I have mentioned this before. If we could ever come to the place in our Christian life where when we're going through trials, we begin to thank God for the trial before it's over, uh, that would be a great thing. Because we would be expressing the truth that we understood that God uses trials in the lives of his children in order to sanctify them, in order to cause them to grow and draw closer to him and be more dependent upon him. And so Paul says this, notice what it says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always, always, and notice he's saying this while he's going through some troubling times, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, those who are rejecting the gospel. To one, that is those who receive the gospel, a fragrance, I'm sorry, those who reject the gospel, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now he's going to answer that question in the next chapter, by the way, when we get there. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to live the normal Christian life? And he's going to tell us the answer to that in the next chapter. For we are not like so many peddlers of the Word of God, or peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So here he's exulting. He's, he's so troubled in mind that he can't stay there and preach the gospel at Troas, and yet he says, God always leads us in triumph. Always. So note, I wanted you to notice four characteristics of the authentic or the normal Christian life. And here's what they are in this text, in Paul's life as he tells his story. First, life-dominating hopefulness. Life-dominating hopefulness. Wouldn't you like to have that? That's the normal Christian life. Secondly, continual success. We'll see what that means in a second. Third, lasting impact. And fourth, blameless integrity. Now let's take a look at this a little bit closer. Uh, in telling this story, he exposes to us what authentic Christian living is. Now let me make this clear. There are phony Christians and there are authentic Christians, but I'm not even talking about that. We're talking about among Christians, some of us can be really living the Christian life at times, and other times we are living a phony Christian life. It's through our own effort. It isn't a dependence upon the Spirit. It's not a trust in God. In fact, we're very suspicious of God. It's amazing how suspicious we can get of Him, isn't it? I was just reading a, a document the other day from a guy I know, and uh, it's obvious that he just can't accept God's opinion about certain things. He's suspicious of God. And sometimes we can be that way. But Paul shows us that the normal Christian life, the authentic Christian life, is a life of trust. It's a life of absolute resting in the integrity of God and the love of God. And so the first thing is life-dominating hopefulness. And that comes from these words in verse 14, but thanks be to God. Now he's thanking God in the midst of his trial. He's giving thanks to God. This is a mark of authentic Christian living, a thankful life, even, to the, even in the midst of trials and troubles, even when you have all kinds of doubts floating through your head and you don't know how things are going to work out. Um, it's quite obvious throughout all the book of Acts, for example, that this, this is a note that's rung over and over and over again, is this dominating hopefulness, this confidence in God, that God knows what he's doing, 
that God has a plan. In fact, the Bible's real clear. It says when everybody who comes to faith in Christ, they are a person who has a relationship with the God who has already decided how he's going to conform them into the image of Christ. Now, the word that Paul uses scares people to death because it's a word predestination. But it doesn't mean that you're a puppet. It means that God has a plan for conforming you because it says what he predestines is your being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, how in the world would you do that? If God says to you, I want you to come up with a plan and share it with me, how you're going to be conformed into the image of Christ? How are you going to become like Jesus? How are you ever going to become like Jesus? You read the Gospels, you see the kind of person he is, and you say, how could I ever become like that? Well, God doesn't ask you to come up with a plan. He has a plan. But his plan is so surprising because it includes things that you never would have put in the plan. But you see, he knows what he's doing. He understands the process of conforming us into the image of Christ. And so it's reflected in all of Paul's letters, this hopefulness that he has. In fact, it's really interesting in the, in the story of the book of Acts and in the modern story about missions, that one of the things God has done repeatedly is the gospel goes into a land where the, go where the gospel's never been preached. Let's say like China, when it first went to China. And then what happens after a while, after the gospel's preached, and there is a group of people who have come to faith, God kicks those missionaries out in various ways. They are typically banished from the country. That's what happened in China. That's what happened uh, with uh, Burns, a schoonmaker, his a friend of couple that went to school with him and Ruth, graduated at the same time. They went to Papua New Guinea and preached the gospel, but they stayed there and there were people saved and a church was planted. But then they left. They had to come home for various reasons. And some years later, I don't remember what it was, 10 years later or so, they go back to Papua New Guinea expecting that this church has probably dwindled down because if you don't have American leadership, you're certainly not going to see the church grow and thrive. But when they got there, instead of one church, there were a, a number of churches that the gospel has spread like wildfire. God has this weird way of doing things. He uses normal, ordinary Christians to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That happened in China. American missionaries got kicked out of China during World War II. They were out for some time. They go back, and the gospel had spread like crazy. The church grew. It's a fasting segment, a growing segment of the church in the world. It's unbelievable how many Christians there are in China. I have a friend that goes there about three times a year, and the opportunities he has, because these people that are following Christ are so committed, and they simply want him to come and teach. They want him to teach them the Bible so they can understand the Word of God. That's how God does it. And he often does this, where those who go in that are the most qualified, the best trained, who know the most stuff, they go in, and then after the gospel begins to work and change people's lives, those leaders have to leave. And God somehow uses just ordinary Christians in the spread of the gospel. And this is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about how preachers are supposed to live. This is the normal Christian life. This is an authentic Christian life. And the first characteristic is life-dominating hopefulness. Why would you have that? Because you know that God is in charge and not you. Because you understand that God has a plan and a purpose. And he's working that plan and purpose in the lives of his people. Um, I, want to, I want to turn you back to Acts for just a second. Look at Acts chapter 16. This is, uh, if you remember, Paul and Silas in prison, in jail, in Philippi. They've been beaten. They've been, they were preaching the gospel. They were beaten and thrown into jail, put into stocks. They're in, this, they're in this jail, and their feet are in stocks. They're, they are incapacitated completely. But in the middle of the night, not knowing what God was going to do, 
And according to the text, Paul was beaten pretty severely. And so they're in this jail now all alone. And in the, in the middle of the night, they begin to sing. <laughs> Why do you sing? Well, you sing because of joy in your heart. Maybe very fleeting, but that's why we sing. I like to whistle. <clears throat> My wife gets sick and tired of it. She's always telling me, I don't, don't really, please don't, don't whistle while I'm watching TV. And I can't help it. It just, it just happens. It just starts coming out of me. And so this morning I was whistling, and, I, and she looked at me and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record all these songs that I know that I whistle, and I'm going to record them and leave them to you. So when I die, you can, uh, you can listen to me. And I was actually whistling the theme song from Robin Hood, the, the animated cartoon of Robin Hood. I'm whistling that, and she knew the song. She knew what it was from. Well, we sing, and we whistle, and make music, make melody in our hearts, because of joy. Well, Paul and Silas are in prison, and guess what? They begin to sing. They had no idea what was about to happen. But right in the middle of their song, there's an earthquake, and all their shackles are broken, and they're set free. The doors are open, all the locks fail. And the whole jail, the people are free to go out. And so the, the jailer, whose life depends on him keeping these people secure in jail, comes out and he's scared to death because he's afraid he's going to be put to death for not doing his job. And Paul and Silas say, hey, don't worry, calm down, it's okay, we're all here, we haven't left. And the guy comes in, and he had heard about what Paul was preaching, and now he sees this earthquake, and he hears Paul say to him, we're not trying to do you any harm, just calm down, it's okay. And so he says to them, well, what must I do to be saved? In fact, he asks the question kind of this way in the, the grammar of the sentence is, what must I keep on doing to be saved? What kind of life do I have to be living in order to be saved? And Paul says to him in response, believe. And he uses a tense which means an act of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But what I want you to see is the hopefulness of Paul and Silas in jail. When was the last time you were in jail for preaching the gospel? Never. And so yet, we hear about missionaries around the world. If you've ever read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs or the Jesus Freaks, and you hear about these people who suffer for the gospel, and some of them are put to death in most horrible kind of ways, and yet the reports are always that they are full of hope even as they are put to death. Why is that? Because that's the normal Christian life. It's hopefulness based upon the goodness of God. That God's made you promises. I don't know if you're aware of the promises, but God has made you a ton of promises, believer. He's promised, Jesus has promised you he'll never leave you or forsake you. He's promised you that the Holy Spirit that he has placed in you, remember he poured out the Spirit as soon as he got back to heaven? And the Spirit came to live within all these believers, and he said he's going to be with you throughout all of life. You're never going to be alone. You're, there's never going to be a time when you cannot call upon the name of the Lord. I should have Nancy come up and give her testimony about how God's been faithful to her for all these years. And he's never failed to be there, has he? He's, yes, he's never failed, that's right. <laughs> he's never failed. He's never failed me. He's never failed you. There's times when we're not aware of it because we don't know his word. We don't know his promises. And so we're not even counting on his promises because we don't know what they are. So he wants you to know his promises. He's given you the Bible. That's why he gave you the word of God. All scriptures God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for you to come to understand what the truth is and for reproof to tell you when you're wrong. Don't you love that? When somebody tells you you're wrong? Well, sometimes you do. If you're trying to do something, you're having a real hard time, and somebody comes along and says, oh, no, you can't do it that way. You've got to do it this way. And you do it that way, and it works. You know, like putting brakes on your car or something. And you're grateful for somebody told you, no, that doesn't work. Well, the Bible tells you the kind of living that doesn't work when you're living for Christ. Pride, arrogance, uh, putting your needs before others. 
being easily uh, offended, that doesn't work in the Christian life and in the normal Christian living with other Christians. Now, the second thing, notice, is continual success. These based on the words in verse 14, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. When? When does he do this? Always. Always. Not occasionally or sometimes. Or when you do something super duper, when you become super saint. No, he always leads us in triumph in Christ. When we're following Christ, he always leads us in triumph. Some of you, I'm sure, are afraid to share the gospel with anybody because you're afraid you're going to get stuck. They're going to ask you a question you don't have an answer to. You don't have to be afraid of that. Jesus told his followers, they're going to drag you before rulers. Don't worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit will give you the words you're supposed to speak. Know the word and trust the Spirit. And so he says he's always leading us in triumph in Christ. Did Paul always accomplish his, his goal in ministry? No. For example, uh, Romans 9, he says, I would, be, I would gladly sacrifice my life in order to see Israel turn to Christ. Didn't happen in his lifetime. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that we always reach our goal. What he is, what he is saying is when we live the authentic Christian life, I'll live with this assurance about God and his work through me. He's going to accomplish his purpose. Now, sometimes his purpose isn't what you expect. Sometimes his purpose isn't for you to demonstrate what a wonderful Christian you are. Maybe God's purpose is to allow you to be crushed so that you see de how desperately you need Christ, how desperately you need to learn how to trust him in daily life. We won't be convinced of our ability to triumph, but we will be assured of God's ability and his intention to lead us in triumph as we serve Christ. It means God's plans and goals are always realized in your life. Isn't that wonderful? His plans are always realized. The triumph of Christ is not Paul's. Every obstacle becomes an opportunity. God puts obstacles. Remember, he was a basket case at one time when they lowered him over the wall. He had to run for his life. And that was right at the beginning. So God's teaching him from the very beginning, you are totally dependent upon me. Now, let me give you an example. When Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he was under house arrest. He was, he, the, the, the one that put him under house arrest was one of the most notorious emperors of, that Rome ever had, Nero. Nero was a maniac. He was an egomaniac. He used to give speeches uh, in the stadium and had thousands of people sitting there, and he would talk for hours. It is said, I don't know if this is really true, but it's said in the literature that there were women who had babies while he was speaking because he wouldn't release them. Because he felt such self-importance that what he said was the most important thing they could ever hear. When he died, I remember this quote, because I, I, uh, some years ago he said, uh, not that I heard Nero, uh, but um, I read it. Nero said, when he died, he says, such a genius dies in me. <laughs> he thought he was the smartest man in the world. And Nero is going to put Paul in prison. And here's why. Because Nero was God's agent for the evangelization of Rome. Let me explain. Paul goes to Rome. He's arrested, thrown in prison. Well, he's taken as a prisoner there, as you know. He's put in prison, but it's a house arrest. And here's what they did. There was a, something called the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was made up of young men who were the sons of noblemen. It was kind of a cushy job in one sense that they did their military service and they would serve six hours a day. So for six hours, these young men, one of these young men would be tied, shackled to Paul. This is God's plan for, for discipleship. Now these young guys, the Praetorian Guard, they were the elite. And they actually, after their service, would become a part of this group that really made, were kingmakers in the Roman Empire. And God uses Nero 
to shackle Paul to one of these men, three of them a day, for six hours each. And guess what happens? A bunch of them come to faith in Christ. I'm not going to turn there, but we're told this. Paul tells us this. That when he writes to the Philippians, he tells them that the whole household of faith in Rome uh, greets him, including those in the Praetorian Guard. So if you got handcuffed to Paul for six hours a day, you would probably hear the gospel. This is this little old man that is a prisoner, and yet he's been given this privilege to make disciples of these young men who are part of the Praetorian Guard. And they become evangelists. You see, God had a plan. His plan was this. By 300 A.D., half of the Roman Empire, over half the Roman Empire, were Christians. And this was part of the plan. He chose Nero to use Nero, this evil man, for good by doing something that looked bad. You know, we have this all the time. Missionaries will report that things are really tough here. They're, they're threatening to drive out all the missionaries. They're coming down on us, and it's really bad. No, it's not bad. We can praise the Lord. God is doing something. He's been doing this throughout the whole history of the church. Now, we should pray for them, and we should be concerned about them, but we should never stop realizing that they are being led in triumph in Christ. And sometimes in church history, the best thing that happened to a place was that the Americans who had taken the gospel, or the British that had taken the gospel there, were put out of the situation, and the Spirit continued to work in the lives of those people without these highly trained men from the West. Because God is like that. And He's like that in your life. And so, Paul ends up being chained for six hours a day. Actually, he was chained whole 24 hours, but three different men. Three shifts. I'm teaching a class right now at the, uh, Cornerstone, and it's a four-hour class, one, one day a week. And I get tired teaching for four hours. Paul is chained to them for six hours. And he's telling them about Christ. And many of them come to faith in Christ and become a part of God's instrument in causing the gospel of Jesus Christ to penetrate the hearts of people in Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire. And when I said a while ago, over half the people in the Roman Empire, not just in the city of Rome, had come to faith in Christ. The third thing is lasting impact. Verses 14 through 16, he says, And he manifests through us the sweet aroma of knowledge of him in every place, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma of, from death to death, to the other aroma from life to life. Now, you don't have an immediate this doesn't immediately communicate a lot to you, but let me explain to you what he's talking about. Most commentators understand it and agree that Paul is thinking about the Roman triumph. And, and here's what would happen. If a Roman general would go out against an enemy of Rome who was threatening the peace of Rome, and he was fighting against an army that was over 5,000, when he defeated that army, they would arrange a triumphal entry to celebrate. It was like a Super Bowl ticker tape parade. And people, they would just, it would be a huge celebration. But here's how it went. The general would ride in on his uh, chariot. In front of him would be a whole group of prisoners who were carrying flowers and uh, incense, yes. <laughs> and so there's a sweet fragrance. They carried flowers and they had these pots with this incense. So these are the ones, these are the people in front of the chariot who were considered to be trustworthy. They were prisoners, but they were trustworthy, and they were going to send them back to their country to rule the country under Rome, under Roman rule. But behind the chariot were men who were in chains, and they were the prisoners that they couldn't trust. And so they were not going to set them free, they were going to execute them. When the prisoners in front smelled the fragrance, 
It was a sweet-smelling fragrance that they're going to be set free and sent back home to rule. The prisoners in the back, when they smelled the exact same thing, it was a sign of death. They were about to be executed. And Paul uses this picture to describe the effects of the gospel. That those who believe, but here's what he's saying, is that the Father is smelling this sweet fragrance of Christ as the gospel is being lived by real Christians. It isn't just when you say something, it's when you live and speak and act as a Christian. That it's like a sweet-smelling savor to the Father. He rejoices in it. If you're a phony Christian, as that is if you live a phony Christian life, and all of us can do that, I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. But when we're living a phony Christian life, it just stinks. It isn't a sweet-smelling savor to the Father. But it's a sweet-smelling savor to Him when we live for Christ and we actually make decisions based on the truth of the gospel as it's revealed to us in the Word of God. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who want to do you harm. That's a command of Christ. Well, it's absurd unless unless you're someone who has found the treasure in the field and you're willing to give up everything you own for it out of joy in what you have found. It's an amazing thing how God can change your heart and turn you into the kind of person who loves people. I've seen God do this. I've seen God take people who couldn't stand to be around other people, who were afraid or completely dislocated, never wanted to be around other people, didn't want to carry on conversation. They want to be left alone. And they come to faith in Christ. He begins to transform them. They begin to give themselves away, and they find it's the greatest joy in all of life. Well, he's saying that those who receive the gospel, as they watch Christ being lived by Christians in this world, it is a, when they believe the gospel, it's like a sweet-smelling savor to them. And those who reject it, it's like the smell of death. They want no part of it. But to God, he says to God, it is a fragrance that he loves because of the truth and integrity of the gospel, which is the message about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is actually who the gospel says he is. The gospel says that he's the eternal son of God who was sent here by the Father to save a people at the cost of his own life. That's what the gospel says about Jesus. And the gospel's true. That's really who he is. So when I believe the gospel, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, you value Christ above all things. He's like the treasure you found in a tree, in the, in the field. And so out of joy, not out of discouragement, not out of, oh, no, I can't, now I have to give up everything. No, you say, oh, I'd be willing to give everything in order to have him. Because you see who he really is. Because God opens our eyes to the gospel. And so those whose eyes have been opened, it is a sweet-smelling savor of life from life to life. You see? And that's supernatural. Don't ever think that you can t- take it or leave it. That, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might decide to be a Christian. Oh, believe me, you never will. Because it takes the work of the living God to touch the heart and to open the eyes to the glory of Christ. And once that happens, you find him absolutely irresistible. You've got to have Christ. I can't live without Christ. There's no way. And there's no way anyone who has come to understand and believe the gospel, they could ever live without Christ. They can live without a lot of things, but they can't live without Christ. And so when that's believed, it's a sweet-smelling savor from life to life. So when we live an authentic Christian life, it's a fragrance to God of Jesus Christ, even in those who reject the gospel. You know, God's not up there worrying about you being a great success. He wants you to love His Son. 
And when you live the authentic Christian life, it's a glorious, sweet savor in his nostrils. <laughs> the last thing is blameless integrity. Now, the Bible says that the work of Christ makes us blameless before God and men. Blameless means there's no handles, no way to, there's nothing that can bring con, uh, condemnation to you. And the reason isn't because you're such a wonderful person, it's because you have a wonderful Savior and you've been clothed in his righteousness. And this is the words, verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak to Christ, we speak in Christ. This is, this is uh, not a description of Christian pastors, it's a description of Christians. This is a description of Christians that we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, he describes us in two ways, if we're living the authentic Christian life. First of all, negatively, we are not peddlers. Now, what a peddler is a huckster. He's a guy that sells stuff on the street, and he wants to make you think that this, this product that he's selling is much better than it really is. If you've ever gone to a timeshare sales presentation and you know how it is they want you to think this is the greatest thing greatest opportunity in all of life that you've ever been exposed to this is your opportunity for true happiness and then you look in the paper and you discover there's thousands of people trying to get rid of their timeshare we are not peddlers we're not trying to shape the gospel so it's appealing to you and therefore distort its truth so that you would, you would be drawn to it. If we do that, we're not preaching the gospel anymore, and it won't save you. False gospels won't save you. So first of all, we're not peddlers, not hucksters. With a huckster, what you see ain't what you get. And positively, he gives a fourfold description. Get this, we're men of sincerity. In other words, what you see is what you get. We're, we're going to be telling the truth. So when someone asks you, and there should be people asking you, this should be a common experience in our lives that people are asking us about Christianity. Sometimes you have people ask you, you know, I know that you're a Christian. Would you mind praying for so-and-so? Somebody approached us the other day. Their uh, father had passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, and wanted us to pray for his mother. Why do they do that? Because when people know you're a Christian, when people know you're a Christian by the way that you live an authentic Christian life, they want you to use this inside track you have to God to speak to him about this situation. And by the way, you do have an inside track to God. It's called Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel. It's called life in Christ. Secondly, he says we are commissioned by God. You remember, um, Paul said in, in the same letter, in chapter 5, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them, and in, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I don't know if that hits you hard. I hope it does, because it's basically saying that you are the people, you who are following Christ, you are the people that God has given you the assignment to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's who you are as a Christian. You're a spokesman for Christ. You go, man, I don't know how to talk about I haven't taken, I haven't gone to seminary, I haven't taken any classes, I don't know how to articulate this. Do you know Jesus? Do you, do you walk with Jesus? Do you experience his blessings in your life every day? Then you are an ambassador. And God wants you to speak to people about the Lord Jesus. You might get, you might get shoved back at first, but guess what? Something's going to happen in the lives of those that know you as, a, as an authentic Christian, and they're going to be coming to you. 
I guarantee it. I bet you if I asked all of you who've had this happen to you, where somebody strongly rejected your attempt to share the gospel, but then something happens in their life, and they come to you. Why do they do that? Because they can't explain it, but they've seen the reality of Christ in your life. And so it's our responsibility to speak for him. And the good news is you've been given the Holy Spirit, so you have anointed lips. And he says we do all this in the sight of God. And then finally we speak in Christ. In verse 20 of that passage I just read, the next verse, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. What does that mean? I don't even know God. Why would I be reconciled to him? Because you don't know him, but he knows you, and he created you, and he created you for the purpose of you having a relationship with him. And he wants you to be reconciled with him. Remember when Jesus told uh, his disciples, if you go to offer an offering, to go offer a sacrifice at the temple, and while you're doing it, you remember that some, some neighbor, some brother in the faith has something against you, stop, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister before you go back and do your religious duty. When we have communion, next week we'll have communion during the service, and we'll try to explain clearly what we're doing when we take communion. And um, that's a good, that is a, a good advice to you. When you come together as a people of God to break bread together, don't dare do it in an unworthy manner, which means while you are having a riff with somebody, while you have something against a brother who's taking communion or a sister who's taking communion with you, don't give in to that temptation. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that's a dangerous thing to do. If you have something against a brother or sister in Christ and you break bread with them, he says, that's the reason that judgment has fallen on this church. There are some who are weak and sickly and some who are asleep. They've died because they were acting in total contradiction to this fellowship meal. That's why we don't want unbelievers taking of the fellowship meal because it's, it's taking it in an unworthy manner. It's for believers who come to rest their faith in Jesus Christ. And so those elements have significance to them. The bread represents his body, and the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. And so we take it together as a community of faith. You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. You just have to be a member of the body of Christ. You have to be a follower of Jesus. And so he says we speak in Christ. All this adds up to integrity. Not super giftedness, not highly talented, not successful in church work. It's integrity. Real integrity. The word integrity uh, comes from, I hate to say this because I've got a mathematician over here, but integer means one, right? But integrity means, in the, in, the, in the original language, it had to do with something that was transparent, that you could see everything that was really there. That's what God wants you to do as a Christian. He just wants you to live with integrity. He doesn't want you to pretend to be something you're not. He wants to, you to be who you really are in Christ. And so as we preach the gospel and call people to faith in Christ, what we're calling them to is authentic Christianity and authentic Christian living. Next time we're going to look at the secret. Next time we do it in 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at the secret of this kind of life, which he's going to talk about in chapter 3. In fact, it's in the first six verses, so if you want to meditate on that a little bit this week, it'd be good. There's the secret. How can I be an authentic Christian? How can I live in an authentic way as a Christian? Any of you know any phony Christians? You're lying. I know a bunch of them. Uh, we've, all met, we've all met people. I'm talking about, they may be saved, I have no idea, but they live a phony Christian life they put on a front and they feel they feel um, obligated to do that we don't ever want to be the kind of church that makes people feel obligated to pretend to be something they're not we will love you and serve you and minister to you any way we can without you being authentic 
but we'll call you to authenticity because it's the only way that you can receive this glorious gift and, and enjoy it. Enjoy this glorious gift that the gospel brings. Let me pray for you. Father, we bow our hearts right now, uh, fully aware that the Holy Spirit is able to take your word and cause it to imp be impressed upon our hearts, to touch us in the deepest level of who we are, Father, I confess to you that this, this truth has done a job on me this week. I'm so glad for it. I'm so grateful for the, this truth that we don't have to be something we're not. We just have to walk in sincerity and truth as your people. That the Holy Spirit can accomplish his work without us being accomplished at things that people want us to be accomplished in. We pray, Father, that you would cause your word to come and minister to our hearts right now, that you'd give us a hunger and a thirst to live an authentic Christian life, that we would cheer up because we really are worse than we think, and we really do desperately need the reality of Christ in our lives. Make us sensitive, to the, to the will of Christ as he has expressed it to us. Father, he's given us commandments that are amazing. He's commanded us to love our enemies. That's, that just seems impossible. And yet the Holy Spirit is able to empower us, to motivate us, and to create in us a heart that loves in that way. And so we pray that you would work deep in our hearts. You'd use your word, Father, and that, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be transforming us every day, we pray. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.